Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Welcome, everybody, to this episode of the Into the Impossible podcast, a production of the Arthur C. Clarke Center for Human Imagination at UC San Diego. I am your fearful host, uh, Brian Keating, co-director of the Arthur C. Clarke Center for Human Imagination, a professor of physics at UC San Diego. And uh, today's a very special day because uh, I don't often get to interview people that have known me since before I was born and uh, people who have played such a huge role in my life in particular, but in literally, you know, millions of people around the world's lives. And that's uh, none other than Jim Simons, Dr. Jim Simons, who's joining us from New York, uh, where he has uh, been sheltering, I presume, uh, for quite some time. Uh, Jim, welcome to the Into the Impossible podcast. Well. Thanks. Glad to be here. Glad to be here. So this podcast is really a discussion of ideas with great intellectuals and thinkers. And I always like to get to know people a little bit better. Uh, usually I, I ask questions about their books or, or so forth. Um, but what I want to start off with you is to kind of ask you if, you know, somebody, uh, an alien abducted you and could speak English to you, uh, and asked you, who are you? Uh, how would you answer that question? What defines Jim Simons to you? Who am I? And what, how do I define myself? Yeah. Scientist, <laughs> a philanthropist. Well, uh, hmm? well, I've been three things. I've been a mathematician. I have uh, run uh, an investment fund and uh, now a, uh, a foundation, a foundation that focuses on basic science of all stripes. So I've done three, three things in my life, aside from you know, having a couple of children, etc. And uh, well, that's, that's been my life. Uh, someone wrote a book about me uh, this past year, and it, I didn't want him to do it, but it didn't come out too badly. So, uh, you know, you can learn about me somewhat in that book. Yeah, we had Greg, uh, Greg Zuckerman. He was a guest on the podcast uh, a few months back. So, yes, we, we, we did talk about that book. And, uh, you know, but I've always encouraged you to write a book. And um, I'm very yes. interested to, to know. One, what's... Of these, one of these days, I'll do it. One of mm -hmm. these days, I'll do it. My daughter keeps urging me to. To do so, I'm going to retire soon from the foundation and then have more time to uh, write my memoirs or something like that. But uh, I don't know what else I can tell you uh, uh, to describe myself. Mm -hmm. I think I, uh, I'm imaginative. I think I have a lot of imagination. Mm. And... Uh, I've had my share of good ideas, some bad ones sometimes, of course. <laughs> In fact, when you're doing science, uh, you probably have five bad ideas for every good one. But uh, my friend Lenny Baum said, uh, he said, bad ideas is good. Hmm. Good ideas is better. No ideas is terrible. And uh, when you're doing science, you have a lot of bad ideas. But, uh, you know, uh, but you get some good ones if you're a good scientist. And 
those carry the day. No, that's great. And I, I like to think about you, yes, as a, as a ponderer, as an intellectual. Um, and I, I, you know, I guess I, I foremost think of you as a scientist because even in philanthropy um, and even in uh, your role as a department chair and, um, and your roles throughout, um, throughout the, you know, the, the financial world, you have always adopted, it seems to me, a scientist mentality where you approach things, just as you said, I could replace what you said, ideas with experiments. And you do many, many experiments, thought experiments, and some succeed and some are actual experiments in real life. Um, I'm not just talking about the Simons Observatory, but I'm talking about uh, running, you know, running projects. And part of what I want to talk to you about today is this notion of, of leadership in these different communities and these different hats that you've worn and whether or not you think there's some translation or some uh, skill set that you had uniquely that made you a good leader of these industries or, or professions, uh, because people are lucky enough to have one career, let alone three. And I wonder, you know, were you just born with it? Was there something that was instilled to, in you by your parents or your upbringing, your relatively modest upbringing in outside of Boston? Uh, is there anything that instilled that, or is it just your nature that you were kind of born this way? Well, we're talking about leadership well i have a lot of imagination so i've come up with some ideas uh that have uh, that have worked but my idea of leadership of an organization is to hire the very best people you possibly can and i have a good taste in people mm -hmm. and then let them carry the ball mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. when i became chair of uh the Stony Brook Math Department, I reached out for the best person I could possibly find. And he was your father. Mm. And uh, I knew if your dad would come on board, it would open up the floodgates of uh, people saying, oh, well, this department uh, can really go somewhere. So I spent a lot of time courting your father. And... Uh, uh, finally, uh, he said yes, and then I was able to quickly hire three or four other outstanding people, and uh, and we did that over the next couple of years. I hired 10 people the first year, 10 the second, and I think maybe 10 people the third year, and by then we built up an outstanding department. Uh, that's uh, kind of a well. Certainly, it's very touching for you to speak about my father, James Axe, in that way. And and I know that you know you had always been described to me by my mother and um, and even by my dad as having this preternatural ability to recognize talent and to, but not only to like be the. the the chess player needs to know not only the names of the pieces and to, that it's better to have a lot of, you know, queens uh, than a lot of pawns, but, but actually how to implement them, how to recruit them into action and get them to do, you know, some of the work that, that is needed to be done for success on a project. You once told me that you read a fiction book called The Captain or something like that that was very influential on you as a leader. Can you remind me the name of that book? Because I, I have not been able to find it yet. Yeah, I can't remember the name of it either, but it was when I was about to become chair of Stony Brook mm -hmm. Math Department. I was 30 years old, and uh, and I found this book. Uh, I think it might have been called Captain, 
about a young fellow in the Navy who um, became captain of a, of a boat at quite a young age and had to learn how to be a commander. And, uh, and one of the things he learned is don't dawdle too much about making a decision. Make a decision. It may be wrong, but it's better to make a decision than just dawdle and dawdle and make no decision. Hmm. And that seemed like an important lesson to me. And I've always been reasonably decisive. Hmm. I consult with other people and so on as one should, but I don't, uh, you know, just go back and forth and back and forth for a long time. I make the decision. Mm. Sometimes it's wrong, but most of the time, uh, my decisions have been, have been good. Another lesson I learned from you a little while ago was, um, you know, when people have something really uh, important to them, say in a department, uh, when you were chair at Stony Brook, you would uh, let them debate it. Maybe it wasn't at the top number one or two priority in your mind, but you could tell it was important to them and you'd let them discuss it. And, uh, and instead of weighing in on every single decision uh, that you'd let people to whom it made the most you know, impact on make those decisions. And then when you would sit those out or, you know, kind of just share the meeting, so to speak. And then by the, you know, for the, for the meetings that had something of great importance to you personally, then you would weigh in and you'd have more gravitas. Is that something that you learned on the job or how, how, how did you, you know, come to that realization that that was an effective management technique? Well, uh, you didn't describe that exactly as it was. So here's how it was. Yeah. I learned quickly that uh, when you have a department meeting, there are a lot of opinions. People like to argue, go back and forth on this and that. And, uh, and so I, I determined that, okay, people like to debate. Fine. I'm going to let them debate. But if it's something important, I'll make the decision in the first place, announce that we're going to do this or we're going to do that. And uh, as the, you know, maybe the first item on the agenda of a department meeting. And then I was very happy to let everyone uh, debate other, other things that were, were coming up, which I didn't think was so important. So, okay, fine. Argue this way, that way, we come to a conclusion. But if it was really important, I would just announce it myself. Mm. And no one objected. <laughs> so that was uh, uh, the way I ran department meetings. Interesting. Uh, when, when you, you know, had um, the opportunity to play a role in these different three different fields, you know, philanthropy, finance and academia. Um, do you feel that there are commonalities? Maybe um, the point I'm getting at mostly is I think there's not, we never received training. On, Here's how you should be a department chair. Um, you know, there, there doesn't seem to be a lot of, uh, you know, mentorship or guidance. It's kind of like sink or swim. You're thrown into this job and you either perform or you don't. And even when you perform, you might be victim of the Peter principle, you know, you rise to the level of your incompetence, <laughs> as it yeah. said. Um, but, you know, do you, you think that that's something that's missing in academia, at least uh, in science, maybe even in philanthropy? How do we cultivate the next generation of leaders? 
Well, that's a good question. Um, it's, it's interesting, in math departments, unless there's a lot of money available and you can really build up the department uh, substantially, uh, most people don't necessarily want the job as department chair. It's often saying, okay, it's my turn. I'll do it for three years or for four years, but uh, I don't really, you know, I want to do research, teaching. I'm not so interested in administration. Now, in other fields, that's not the case. Mm-hmm. In, uh, in biology or, or, or medical school, the, the chair of a department, uh, that's really a, 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 not only an important thing, but a sought-after thing. Yes. So uh, when I was interviewing for chair of the math department, the, with the provost, he said something very funny. He said, well, Dr. Simons, you're the first person I've interviewed for this job who actually wants it. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, no, I, I, I want it. So uh, they hired me. So I don't know if there's... Uh, if I think people who uh, rise up in academia get the experience, they see, you know, what other people are doing and what mistakes they may have made or whatever, and, and try to learn. Uh, and I think that's the way uh, people rise up in any organization. Uh, so do you, do you see it as I a? Think, I, I mean, not, secret to it. Right. I mean, I just can't imagine somebody being offered, uh, you know, CEO or managing director of Renaissance Technologies. Ah, I, I'm not sure. I got to think about it. Uh, why do you think it is that people, you know, it's almost like a, you know, the the, the booby prize in academia. If you're, if you're selected for department chair, it's like uh, congratulations, question mark, or my condolences. But but it really should be, you know, if somebody offered somebody the the CEO of Apple, I don't think they would say, oh, I really got to think about this. I got to talk to my, yeah. you know, my, my spouse. Well, I mean, uh, it's, it, it, it's a different deal. Uh, it takes you being a department chair, uh, at least in, uh, in mathematics and, and perhaps physics or astronomy, is uh, it takes you away from your research. Mm-hmm. And your research is the thing most people want to do the most. Yeah. So they feel, okay, I have to do some administration. It's my turn. I'll, I'll do the best I can, but uh, I'll be glad when it's over. So whereas, you know, running a, a, a company is a, whole, is a whole different deal. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's something that uh, some people are good at and really want to do that and lead the company and make a lot of money. Mm-hmm. So, uh, but academic departments uh, don't make a lot of money. Yeah. So uh, that's the way I see it. Last year, we were together for the total solar eclipse in Chile, and I asked you, you know, if you could arrange a dinner party for a famous uh, single person from history, you know, a hundred years or more ago, uh, who would it be? And you basically instantaneously said Abraham Lincoln. And I wonder, um, uh, what does he mean to you? And, and are there lessons in his leadership style that, that speak to you so loudly that he would be the historical figure that you'd most like to sit down with for, uh, for, for a meal? Yeah, well, uh, I only really have one hero in my life, and, it, and it's Abraham Lincoln. Mm-hmm. There's a, many people I admire and so on, but as a hero, 
It's Abraham Lincoln. And he had the following qualities. Uh, he had very, very good social skills. People liked to be around him. He told a lot of jokes and so on. He was very smart. He was very smart. In his uh, middle, before he became president, he decided to study Euclidean geometry and understand uh, that much mathematics, just on his own, because he, he was just curious. And uh, he was a very, very smart guy. Good social skills, wonderful social skills, and determination. He had determination. He, there were so many times during the Civil War where he could have just said to hell with it. Uh, let's just have two countries. So many people are being killed uh, in this terrible war. But he had a vision of America, and he stuck to that vision and, and uh, just wouldn't give up. And over time, uh, he was right, uh, and that held the country together. We won the Civil War. I say we won the Civil War. The North, yeah, right. the North won the Civil War, and uh, and then he got with great effort the amendment passed, which uh, abolished slavery in the United States. Yes, and that was very difficult to get passed, but he knew he had to had to get it passed before the war was over. And there were a lot of southern, Southerners now back in the Congress, and it, would, it, would, uh, it wouldn't get passed. And he said to his, his guys, he said, this is very important. I want you to go out and do everything you can, twist every arm, give people this or that if they, if they feel they need it. Uh, I'm the president of the United States. I'm imbued with great power use that power and get this uh, amendment passed. Mm. And it worked. Yeah. So uh, I think he was just just a great man in every respect. If I'm not mistaken, the poem, Oh, Captain, My Captain, which has the title Captain from your book that you mentioned earlier, is written about Abraham Lincoln. Um, speaking of books and Abraham Lincoln, is there any book, any book or biography of Lincoln that you recommend or story uh, about him by any author? I've read uh, at least four biographies hmm. of Lincoln. Which ones uh, did you like? You know, I can't remember uh, any of the names. I'm terrible at names. Uh, but, There's one uh, called Team of Rivals, uh, that by Doris Kearns Goodwin. That's, well, that's right. That's it, okay. Team of Rivals. Mm -hmm. That's the most recent interesting uh, semi-biography of him because it was about the other people on his cabinet. But, but that was an example. These people had wanted to be president, at least a couple of them. And, uh, and he said, look, you're, you're the best guys around. Uh, I want you on my cabinet. And they came. And at a certain point, not too late in the game, um, Stanson became the Secretary of War, they called it, the Secretary of War, uh, replacing a, a, a poor choice that he had made for that position. So 
that guy left and Stanton came in and got to know Lincoln. Now, he had met Lincoln years earlier. Lincoln was a railroad lawyer, and he did a very good job in the Midwest representing railroads, and uh, railroads were just coming into the United States, and there were, you know, uh, legal issues and uh, uh, trials and so on. So he was a very good uh, railroad lawyer, but there was a big case with a big railroad, and and it was going to be held in Cincinnati. He was put on it, but then the, the railroad said, well, we really need a big New York firm. We, we really need to put a lot of heft into this. So uh, they hired Stanton and his firm. Lincoln, Lincoln was still on the job, but he just sat there and listened and later uh, said, you know, I learned a lot from that. But Stanton and his team, they just thought this guy was a dope. Uh, you know, he just sat there, he didn't say anything, whatever. And later when he became in, in Lincoln's cabinet and understood who Lincoln was, he was quoted as saying, none were so wrong than we in Cincinnati. Mm. So because that's, that's where the trial was held. Right. And uh, so Stanton uh, told his... His cabinet, you know, really was adored him, or, mm. or maybe adored him as a strong word, but sounds too lovey dovey, but uh, admired him. And uh, he was just a great man. I could go on and on about mm -hmm. Lincoln. But, <laughs> yeah. uh, I'm sure I want to touch upon what you mentioned before, and we had this conversation also in, in the you know, Declaration of Independence, Thomas Jefferson declares certain things as self-evident. And Stephen Shrogatz, who hosts the Quantum Magazine Joy of X podcast uh, for Quantum Magazine, which is uh, uh, at least sponsored by the Simons Foundation, the, um, Stephen points out that that very phrase, you know, we hold these truths to be self-evident, is really a reference to Euclidean geometry, where Euclid would prove things in his elements, which is one of your favorite books, uh, I know. And, and he would say such and such is self-evident. And I wonder if we could segue into a, a little bit of a, a discussion about why math appeals to you uh, and has from a young age. Because if I recall correctly, one of your first, you know, realizations and encounters with math was sort of a realization of what we call Zeno's paradox. And I wonder, can you recount the story of when you basically at age, what, four or five, really kind of rediscovered or discovered Zeno's paradox for yourself? And what did that do igniting within you and perhaps a love of mathematics? Well, first, let's, let's go back uh, mm -hmm. to... Uh, uh, Euclid, what he said was self-evident were the axioms. The mm -hmm. parallelism axiom, uh, that was the toughest one. Two points to describe a unique line and, uh, and the intersection uh, principle. So those, he said, were self-evident. But from then on, the theorems that developed from these were not self-evident. They were all, uh, well, some of them looked obvious, but nonetheless, they were all proved using these initial, quote-unquote, self-evident uh, things. Mm -hmm. Now, my this, the discovery of Zeno's paradox uh, was when I was a little boy, maybe three or four. I was riding in the car with my father, and he, he, he said he had to stop. 
uh, to get gas. I said, well, why? Why do you do that? He said, I don't want to run out of gas uh, because, you know, the car won't run. And I said, well, why don't you just use half the amount that's in the tank and then use half of that and then use half of that, etc., and you'll never run out. <laughs> <laughs> you'll never run out of gas. Now, it, I didn't think it further through and realize, yes, but you'll never get anywhere either. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, uh, but I could see that, you know, you just keep cutting something down in half and there's still something left. So uh, that was something that I... Uh, also, when I was a little boy, well, a lot of kids did this, I think, just kept doubling numbers. One, mm -hmm. two, four, eight, sixteen. I got up to... 2024, I suppose, before I got bored with it, but I, I, I thought that was that was fun. But one thing, you know, I used to think a lot. Mm. I, I would, I would, I would think a lot, and sometimes talk to myself. And when I went to bed, I, I often lay in bed thinking. And for some reason or another, and I couldn't have been more than ten. I heard the expression "pass it on," and I know you know you know what that means. Pass it on. But I lay in bed and said, "Well, how do you define that?" Hmm. If I say uh, so and so is uh, going to be married, pass it on. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, for an example. Uh, well, how do you, you say, tell the next guy and tell him to tell the next guy and tell him to tell the next guy, etc. Recursively, yeah. Yeah, it, uh, it, it, I needed to get a definition. And I tossed and turned for several days trying to get a definition of pass it on. <laughs> Finally, one night I, I fell asleep believing I had it. But when I woke up, I forgot what I had the night before. So I, I finally just said the hell with it. And, uh, but, but that a little kid would think about the question of how you define something is, uh, you know, is, is unusual. Yeah. That's, uh, that's impressive for sure. And, and do you feel that that, uh, I always see with my little kids when they solve a puzzle, a jigsaw puzzle or a crossword puzzle like Marilyn, uh, you know, must have instilled in me as a young person. And now my kids play do crossword puzzles on their iPhones and iPads. Uh, when they solve it, they almost want to redo it because they get a little taste of excitement uh, that mirrors and mimics the excitement that they felt when they solved it the first time. And I wonder if that encounter that math encounter that you um that you underwent at that young age did, do you think that was an incisive event that had an impact on your later development um you know into becoming a mathematician uh later on in life well i don't know if that particular thing did I or that way of did. thinking that that way of, of curiosity that you had yes i think that's that's probably true mm -hmm. that was a. Uh, something that I never forgot, actually. Hmm. But mathematics was the only uh, subject that I liked, uh, actually. Um, 
in grammar school and even in high school, uh, I didn't like, uh, uh, science was not very well taught. And uh, I didn't, I, I, I was a voracious reader, so I, I love literature, but uh, I, I didn't write very well. So, but the subject that, uh, that I loved uh, was mathematics. And in those days when I was in high school, the AP uh, thing was just coming into play. Right. So, um, and a few high schools had been chosen to pioneer this thing. And my high school, Newton High School in Newton, Massachusetts, was one of them. So uh, I learned calculus in high school, which today, you know, first-year calculus, which uh, today uh, the, the AP uh, courses take. It wasn't called AP. It was called the, uh, the something plan. But mm -hmm. uh, whatever it was, Kenyan plan. It was called the Kenyan plan. I don't know why. Mm. But uh, so... Uh, so I uh, took a, uh, that advanced course and then, and then went to MIT. And I, I learned later that the, uh, I got my, my, uh, teacher, uh, in the, in the, uh, 12th grade was one of the people who, uh, designed the test and then, uh, uh, you know, consulted with others and who passed the test and who didn't. And he, someone told me, he said, Simons has to pass the test. If, if, uh, if he can't, that should be uh, a level. Uh, he should pass the test. So his score should be a passing score. <laughs> and uh, That was the standard. Yeah, that would be the standard. Calibration. Yeah, so... Uh, and uh, so I, I uh, anyway, I went to college and uh, studied math. In my freshman year, I took a graduate course in the second semester. And it said no, uh, uh, what do you call it? Uh, Audit. Uh, you know, you didn't have to have taken any other course. Oh, no prerequisites. No prerequisites. Yes. Yeah, no prerequisites. So I said, okay, to myself, I'm going to take this course. And it was on uh, abstract algebra, group theory and some vector spaces and so on. And I was very puzzled by this course. I passed it. But I really didn't understand what it was all about. Hmm. But that summer, I got a book on algebra. And within a couple of weeks, I realized, oh, that's what it's all about. I just had this, this uh, over the summer, this uh, vision or, hmm. or whatever. Uh, Epiphany uh, almost. Epiphany mm -hmm. that uh, this is what this is all about, and from then on, the next two years, I took the most advanced algebra classes, and uh, in my third year, it was with a guy named Iwasawa, and it was topics in algebra. It was called, and I think I was the only person in the class. It was a was a graduate class, and I was in my third year, and uh, I think I was the only one who solved all the problems. And that was the homework. So, uh, 
So I was good at algebra, but my, I was also introduced to differential geometry in that same uh, year. And uh, I loved it. I just loved it and uh, uh, felt that uh, I would do very well at that, which, which, which I did. I, when I learned Stokes' theorem, that I thought that was the most beautiful theorem I ever saw. <laughs> Stokes theorem. It generalizes the fundamental theorem of calculus. It, it you know, it's just uh, the divergence theorem, so on, all wrapped up in Stokes theorem and this notion of differential forms. Yes. You know what a differential form is? Yeah, of course. We're going to talk about that next. Yeah, go ahead. Okay. You want to describe it for my listeners, though? Uh, the differential form and, and why it's so beautiful, as you say? Yeah, why don't you? Yeah, well, I like uh, how you describe it. (laughs) So we we talk about the the you know kind of relationship. It's almost you know mirroring, I believe, what Hilbert said. You know, the unreasonable effectiveness of mathematics in uh, no that was that that was Vigner. Oh, Vigner. Sorry, Vigner. It's almost there's a second order unreasonable uh, effectiveness of geometry and physics, and uh, we talk about our, our connection between geometric forms and uh and their utility in geometry general relativity and uh more recently in in, in terms of, of quantum field theory and understanding the properties of um of you know at the the, uh, the behavior particles in these abstract spaces and uh, lately there's been a lot of uh, controversy there's a young well i shouldn't say young he's a couple of years older than me and i'm not young but there's a man by the name of eric weinstein who i believe you know and he's he's trying to develop what he calls a, um, a, a, a really a geometric theory of all of physics, and it's very controversial. But effectively, finding the analogs of particles that we call fermions in an abstract fourteen-dimensional geometric space, and these connections—one forms, two forms, metric connections—these are vital attributes of. Uh, of this model that he's constructed, and it's and some of it's in analogy with uh, with work that's that's already been done. And what what he what Eric this Eric Weinstein has done is he's made a digital version of your of the famous Simon Center uh, for Geometry and Physics has what's called the iconic wall of mathematics and physics. And yeah. on this and on this huge wall, four hundred and sixty five square foot wall, are the basic. And I'm going to have a link, and I'll show images in the video of this conversation, you have uh, the metric equation, you have Einstein equations, which are you know, two forms, um, uh, geometric objects in differential geometry. And some claim that this is the pinnacle, not only of math and physics, but really of civilization, that the, uh, that the equations on your wall ha- represent the pinnacle of what we've been able to achieve as a species. And you said something interesting a few minutes ago. You said when you understood Stokes' theorem, uh, it it was beautiful to you, and I want to connect that to the Simon Center, the wall. Do you think of math as beautiful in the sense uh, that art is beautiful? I mean, we often hear this debate: you know, is mathematics discovered or invented? I don't think people would say uh, Michelangelo discovered you know the David inside of a block of marble, even though he would say stuff like that. But I, he actually created it. But mathematics and what's chiseled into your wall in the Simon Center, do you feel that that's, you know, discovered or, or really is it invented by the human mind? And then the, the follow-up question after you answer that will be, 
is it beautiful? Is it, does it rank among, alongside great music, great artwork? And if so, why? So first, is mathematics discovered or invented the way art or uh, you know, inventions are, are found? Yeah, that's a uh, standard question. Yeah. And uh, it's, it's both. Hmm. How so? Every, every true theorem is out there. The number of true theorems is, I believe, infinite. And the number of definitions that one can make is infinite. Mm. So all these things are out there. But on the other hand, you don't know this. There's no book of all these things because it's an infinite number of possible theorems and definitions. The key is, in doing mathematics, to, let's say, find a good definition, a definition that will get you somewhere, a definition that uh, would unify, perhaps, other things, and so on. So that's a creative act. So it's a creative act to find something interesting in an infinite field, and in, in an infinite collection of, uh, of things. So it's out there, but you have to find it and have good taste uh, in, in, in finding something that will really go somewhere. Mm. So it's guided by wisdom as well as knowledge. I, I think that's, that's interesting. And then the question, the follow-up question um, is uh, is math a form of art? Does it have commonalities? Is it different than music or art? Does it move you? I've always been curious. Does it? Do you feel? Does it invoke any emotions when you look at the wall? Not just for its artistic beauty, which it is, but when you see the Aharon of Bohm effect, or you see, um, you know, the, the, the Dirac equation, or, or just a pure mathematical relationship, Stokes Stokes theorem. When you see these, does it evoke an emotion inside of Jim Simons? Well, I mean, I've seen these things so often, it's, it's hard to uh, keep getting emotional about it. <laughs> I know, uh, but yeah, but the, the notion but, but, of is math evocative to you? Are you an emotional person, first of all? And then, you know, does math evoke great beauty the way that great art or music does in some people? Well, math certainly evokes beauty. Uh, it's, it's when someone does something good or whatever, it's, it's, it's very often it's characterized, oh, that's a beautiful thing. And that, that's a beautiful result. The word beauty is, permeates mathematics. So uh, I think there's an aesthetic to it. That that's why we use that word. Mm. And, of course, uh, uh, art, regular artists can be beautiful and poems can be beautiful and uh, uh, all those things. But mathematics definitely... Uh, is characterized by beauty. Excellent. So the next question I have is just kind of a yes or no question. Don't feel obliged to elaborate too much. There's a there's an often said um, you know canard or or what have you quip that mathematicians peak at age thirty. Uh, that's the age that you started the math department at Stony Brook. Uh, do you find any credence in that? My father didn't think it was true, but what, what's your opinion about this notion that oh mathematicians do their best work by age thirty? Uh Mathematicians can do a lot of good work by age 30, um, but they can do a lot of good work 
uh, at age 50 or 60, uh, I've reached a point 82 where I really can't do math anymore. But I could up to my early 70s. So uh, uh, I got some good results, actually, mm -hmm. uh, when I went back to mathematics uh, yeah. for a while. So uh, I think, yes, young people uh, can do terrific things. But the older people can do good stuff, too. Mm -hmm. So I, I don't think it's uh, everyone, every mathematician did his best work when he was under 30. That's probably not the case. Okay, now we're going to transition a little bit into a later career, uh, which was uh, involving in the financial world. But we're going to connect it to a famous geometer uh, of, of, uh, in physics, and that's Albert Einstein. So our segue between geometry and finance will be none other than Albert Einstein, who once said that compound interest is the most powerful force in the universe. Compound interest is the eighth wonder of the world. He who understands it earns it. He who doesn't pays it. Uh, do you agree with that? Uh, I, never the, I never heard that. Uh, you never heard that. Okay, I'll send you. I'll send you an email with a quote. It. Uh, yeah. So once again, compound interest is the eighth wonder of the world. He who understands it earns it, and he who doesn't pays it. What What is your notion of the? What's the most powerful force in the world, according to Jim Simons? <laughs> well, the most powerful force in the world according to me, is some physical force. I don't know <laughs> which, which one to pick. But, uh, but uh, this, of course, is, is finance, finance and not, uh, and not yeah. physics. So, uh, gee, uh, I've been pretty successful in, in finance. Uh, yeah, you've had some success, I would say. Yeah. I've had some success. <laughs> Today, actually, I, I lost some money. Oh, no. Not a huge thing, but I, I'm uh, here for you, Jim. If you if you need anything, I was, <laughs> today was a losing day. I'm sorry, uh, but uh, yeah. Actually, questions. how do you, how do you how do you think of yourself? So um, this seg segues into something that I think will be of great interest. Uh, not because you're of your total amass, uh, amassed wealth or anything, but how do you think of of money? What is money to you? Is it is it a tool? Is it is it a vice? Some people see money in a very negative way nowadays. How do you view money and and uh, what is its purpose as far as you're concerned? Well, most of the money that I've earned is now in our foundations. Mm -hmm. So I think I have only 10 or 15% of the money uh, uh, that I've earned that's not in the foundations. But that's plenty, mm -hmm. plenty for me. Uh, look, uh, I enjoy being wealthy. Uh, I enjoy having my boat and my airplane. Mm -hmm. And, uh, two houses, one thing or another. Mm -hmm. uh, there's no question that I enjoy that. But I also enjoy uh, the foundation and doing really interesting things with the money, uh, as we're doing with your telescope project. Yeah. And that's very satisfying. So I think I like all aspects of money. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yes. Yeah, certainly. Yeah, it's uh, they say God bless the child who has his or her own. Um, the uh, a question came in from a friend of mine who is uh, in in the financial uh, industry, so to speak, and uh, th this person wanted to know um, uh, about kind of the, the philosophy 
by which you run your life. I guess I guess I would say first question was, um, do you have a set of routines or habits uh, that that shape your daily um, activities? Do you have uh, you know space in your calendar for just pondering things? How do you organize your daily schedule in terms of your habits and, and tactics? When I was seventy, I'm a smoker, as you might have noticed. Yes. And at 70, I thought, well, maybe I should give up smoking. Now, Marilyn suggested, well, maybe you should take up exercise because that might help uh, take your mind off smoking. Mm. So I did that. I got two trainers. And every morning, I'd set my alarm for 6 o'clock. And 6.30, I was one of, with one of the two trainers. Wow. <laughs> now, after a couple of months, I went back to smoking. I couldn't stand not smoking. But I loved doing exercise. Oh, wow. So I do that every single morning. Well, five days a week. Yes. Uh, wow. And I, uh, I, do a, I walk very fast, and then I do push-ups and uh, sit-ups and all that kind of stuff. Mm. So that's a regular part of my routine every morning for an hour. Uh-huh. And, <laughs> and, yeah. and, the, and the rest is totally disorganized. No, <laughs> uh, it's, you know, I have uh, regular meetings with uh, the different people I supervise at the foundation. Sometimes it's a weekly meeting or a monthly meeting, but uh, I, I, uh, that's the way I, I run things. Mm. Uh, but mostly, of course, as I told you, when you hire wonderful people, you let them, you know, do that thing and don't stand, yeah. stand up at the wall. Let me know right. if you can find someone to work out for me that will actually do the exercise uh, for, let me know if you can find someone to do that. Um, one of my listeners, friend of mine who hosts a podcast himself, James Altucher, wants to know, uh, the proprietary algorithms of the, of the medallion. No, he's, uh, he wants to know, has it become harder for you, um, given the rise in quantitative hedge funds, quant funds, and the thousands of PhDs trying to create new algorithms, has that made it harder to create alpha? So um, can you say what alpha means in the context of hedge funds uh, for people that aren't familiar and then answer that particular question? Well, when you say alpha, first you have to understand beta. Hmm. And, and beta is the, uh, uh, the stock market as a whole. Um, let's say the S&P average. So you could just uh, invest in that and you would be 100% beta. All your return would be would come from the, let's say, the S&P, the Standard & Poor's average. Alpha is uh, a source of uh, earnings that is orthogonal to that. Mm. It's orthogonal to that. And uh, so that's alpha. Now, some, uh, our medallion fund is, uh, I think, 90% alpha or 95% alpha. It really doesn't uh, matter where the stock market is going uh, for the medallion fund. We have, uh, now the medallion fund is only open to employees of the of the company of renaissance mm -hmm. and, and me of course uh, mm -hmm. as a founder and shareholder uh so uh and and we have some 
publicly available funds, which do have some beta. They're not 100% alpha. Mm -hmm. and, but, of course, they don't do as well as Medallion, but, uh, but they do uh, quite well until <laughs> today. <laughs> they had a bad day. <laughs> no. oh, I'm sorry. Again, I'm always here. If you need a, if you need a cup yeah. of sugar, I'm here. Okay. Jim. <laughs> right. um, so in, in that space, the question is, um, I've heard it described that these supercomputers and, and computers in general are, of course, increasing exponentially. Example of power, computing power over time and cost is coming down. And yet the supercomputers themselves are suffering from the fact that there's more subscriptions. There's more people that want to use the computer now than in the earlier days. So it's sort of offsetting the exponential gains in processing power. And I guess James Altucher's question here is, has the just the net quantity of hedge funds and quant PhDs? Yes, I understand. And I yeah. Didn't, I didn't, yeah, I didn't answer that question. Yeah. So I think the question is, do we have competition and how much competition uh, has competition hurt us at all? Because there are more and more quantitative funds up mm -hmm. to a point. I, I think most funds are not quantitative funds, but there's certainly a, an increasing number of funds that are well, quantitative. And uh, our secret is just to stay ahead of everybody. Mm. The higher the best possible people. And the research goes on all the time, all the time we're doing research trying to find new predictive signals. Mm. New predictive signals, uh, for example, that's a big example. So mm -hmm. a signal is, well, you know what a signal is. It, so it tells you what's, a predictive signal is a signal that tells you what's gonna, what's gonna happen. Mm -hmm. and, some probability uh, of, right. With, some, with, with a, a greater than, probability greater than a half. Mm -hmm. uh, and the more of these signals that you have, and independent, they're not correlated with each other. If they're highly correlated, it's, it's really just one signal. Mm -hmm. uh, but um, the more you have, the better. And mm -hmm. uh, we have, uh, I won't even say the number, uh, and I'm not sure what it is, but it's a very large number of predictive signals. Mm -hmm. And they keep uh, being developed. And sometimes these signals lose their power. Yes. And uh, you have to discard them. Uh, other people have caught on or whatever. In the earliest days of my trading, uh, I traded commodities. Mm. And commodities had a tendency to trend, mm -hmm. a pretty strong tendency to trend. So that was a good way to make money. You would just say, well, if it was up last week, it's likely to be up next week or so on. Uh, but people gradually caught on to trending. Mm -hmm. So after uh, several years or maybe 10 years after I started in the business, it, the trending in commodities had uh, completely disappeared. Uh, the stocks never trended particularly, so there was no real trending in stocks, but commodities there was. And so, so that's an example of a, of a signal uh, that mm -hmm. just disappeared. Hmm. So that's and so other people. We don't. We keep discovering new signals. Other people uh, might find some of those as well, and that might uh, the effect of that might be that the signal kind of goes away because too mm -hmm. many people are using it. Mm -hmm. But um, so we have awfully smart people, 
and they keep coming up with new signals. So that's, and we've stayed, you know, we've stayed with ahead. Um, so the last uh, section of the conversation I want to talk to you about, as befits the Father's Day uh, podcast episode uh, that I hope this will become, uh, really revolves around um, you know the aspects of mentorship and fatherhood. And the first question I have is, um, what was what was Jim Simons like as a PhD thesis advisor? You mentioned that you didn't have a great deal of students um, in your career, but what was your style as a mentor uh, to PhD students? Well, uh, typically with a PhD student, uh, you have to help them find a problem in mathematics that you think that uh, uh, was worth working on and so on. And then you, you'd meet with them every week or something like that and see how, see how he's getting along. Uh, my first student, it was different. My first student was uh, when I was, let's see, I was about 26. And I was working actually at the Institute for Defense Analyses as a code cracker. I did that for four years. Yeah. And, uh, and he had just, he had taken a course from me at Harvard. He was, I think, two years behind me. And then he went to Princeton. Uh, and he wanted to do differential geometry, but there was no one in Princeton at that time who was especially uh, good at it. Uh, the faculty didn't have that much. So he asked if, you know, I, I could be his, he could be my student, and I gave him some papers to read and so on. And then one day he came in and he said, uh, I've proved such and such. <laughs> he said, you proved such and such? That's fantastic. And uh, it was. He got a great result. It never, that result never occurred to me. And, uh, but he, uh, so he was my best student by far. Hmm. Uh, he's won the Beblin Prize. Uh, he's had a great career. His, name, his name is Jeff Cheever. Jeff, Jeff Cheever. Jeff yes. Cheever. Ah, okay. And uh, so he was far and away my best student. Others, hmm. The others that I had, I had another pretty good one named John Nelson. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, the rest were not especially good, and uh, it was it was uh, not so easy. But as I said, I only had maybe six students or seven. And then on the other side, you know, for somebody who's seeking out a mentor or an advisor. Um, did you have anyone, we're, we'll talk about your father in just a second, but did you have anybody who was a mentor in the academic world and the financial world, uh, or are you just really self-taught? Well, I certainly had some mentors, uh, is Singer mm -hmm. of, uh, Atiyah Singer Index fame, yeah. uh, was, uh, a, a, a good person for me. And, uh, this was at MIT and so was his, his buddy, Warren Ambrose. He was an older guy, uh, but also, uh, did geometry. Uh, those two people were very influential on me. And um, it's kind of funny because we used to go to a, uh, a delicatessen late at night when I was a student. And uh, one day I saw Ambrose and Singer come in late at night. And they were obviously doing mathematics, 
and I saw this uh, on a number of occasions, and I thought, boy, that's that's the greatest job in the world when you can just hang out in a hang out at a delicatessen and do mathematics at midnight. So, uh, so those two people influenced me. When I got to Berkeley, so I spent one year as a graduate student at MIT. I graduated in three years. I spent one year as a graduate student. I worked with Singer. Mm -hmm. But he suggested I go to Berkeley and work with Chern, who was just coming to, uh, to Berkeley. Yeah. And, uh, so, okay, I got a nice fellowship. I went to Berkeley. But regrettably, Chern was celebrating his first year at Berkeley by taking a sabbatical, so he wasn't there. So I found someone else to work with, a guy named Costant, and he influenced me quite a lot. I liked the way he did things. Um, uh, and um, a, there were various ways of, of doing geometry. Uh, and there was a, a, a statement from saying that geometry is a subject uh, that's invariant under changes of notation. Those were three completely different notational things. Uh, and uh, churn like moving frames, whatever whatever that was. I, I, I explained a little bit. Vector bundles and moving frames. Uh, the, the original thing was uh, Christoffel symbols or something. And, and uh, but uh, Covariant differentiation was the way uh, this guy Costant approached it, and that's the way I've always approached it since. And uh, and Costant was uh, he was a good guy. Uh, I came to him one day and said I have an idea, and I showed him the idea, and he said, "Oh, that's that could be related to this outstanding problem." Uh, and he told me the problem, but he said, "But don't try that because it's too hard." Uh, Singer tried it, uh, Burrell tried it. So that, uh, of course, got me going. Yeah. And uh, I solved that problem. And, uh, uh, and uh, well, Costa was, was pleased and, su and surprised. Yeah. But, uh, so uh, Do you think so he, he, influ he influenced me. Do you think if uh, Chern had been had been present at Berkeley, that uh, perhaps your career might have taken a different turn? Just thinking serendipitously, uh, uh, looking back with the benefit of hindsight. You know, I've thought about that. I don't know if I'd have done as good a thesis if I'd mm -hmm. been worked under Chern, yeah. or it, it could have been better. But I was very happy with uh, with the way it worked out. Yeah, and I got to know Chern in my second year there at Berkeley, uh, and it was my last year, um, it was funny. I was giving a seminar in the beginning of my second year, and this tall Chinese guy walks in. And I said to the guy next to me, who's that? He said, that's Churn. I said, Churn? <laughs> I had no idea he was Chinese. <laughs> if his name was Chen or Chan, I would have known. I figured... Okay. He was some Polish guy who changed his name from Chernowski to Chern. <laughs> <laughs> but he and, I, nice, maybe he, did. he and I got to be friends. Of course, he was 25 years or 30 years older than I am. Yeah. Was. But uh, we became friends, and, uh, and he followed my work. And I did some very good work in what's called minimal varieties, 
a minimal variety is something that minimizes surface area or a higher dimensional area uh, with respect to its boundary. You know, like a, mm -hmm. if you put a, a wire frame into a soap suds, a surface will form on that wire frame. And if it's twisted or something, it might look curious, but it has the least area of any other surface with that same boundary. That's called a minimal surface. And that was a very interesting field. And I worked in that for uh, for five years and uh, produced a really good result, a really good result. It's had, uh, it still gets citations after 50 years. Wow. And it still gets citations. I, fo I follow the growth in citations. <laughs> Your H-index is and increasing. Every, uh, yeah. So, so, and Churn, he, he really ate that up. He, he was, uh, uh, he, he wrote a whole set of notes on it. I thought, wait a minute, is he just copying my work? But no, it was just a show. <laughs> 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 so, <laughs> I didn't think he was doing, right. doing my work. And then yeah. he, and, he and I, of course, worked together uh, and got these Churn Simons uh, things right yeah i just i've thought about that in your career you know just just from the context of you know my advisor probably would never respect me the same way that he would or you know uh if if i came to them as a fully developed scientist whatever that means just because they've seen me you know my advisor peter timby has seen me at my most ignorant and uh therefore i, I always feel like ah there's no way he could ever fully respect me the way somebody might meet me uh, after becoming more developed. So who knows, maybe you know, Chern Simons might not have occurred if he hadn't taken that sabbatical and then the world would look uh, very different, um, at least. That's, uh, that's entirely possible. Yeah. So, oh, oh, oh. Mm -hmm. All right, go ahead. Yeah, so I was just going to segue a little bit into uh, a different type of mentorship, which is father-child uh, mentorship. So the first question I want to ask you, is there anything about your father, um, any the, the lesson or character trait that he instilled with you? I, I always think of our parents' job is to place a little voice recording in the back of our heads that will play at some time in the future when, we, when we're not around, maybe. Um, is there any, are there any lessons that your father taught you that you find yourself saying or, or thinking even um, uh, many years later? Yeah, my father and mother were very different. Mm -hmm. I was an only child. Mm -hmm. My mother, uh, after I was born, she had some uh, miscarriages, and then uh, she had to have a what's called a hysterectomy, mm -hmm. uh, whether the uterus is removed. So she couldn't have any more children. So I was her project. Uh, she didn't work, of course, in those days. Uh, her, her mothers didn't didn't work. I, I was her project, and she really was tough on me. Mm. Uh, did I do my homework and so on? And uh, uh, and I often did, <laughs> didn't do my homework. Uh, so she 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 was uh, she considered me her project. My father, on the other hand. She just simply loved me mm. for for uh, for who I was, whoever I was. His son, he called me son. He, ne he, he never called me Jim. He called mm. me, son. and uh, and he was just a lovely man, and um, he was just a lovely man. And the only thing he, he taught me 
and uh, was he was a salesman. Uh, he was a salesman for 20th Century Fox, in fact. Hmm. In those days, you'd go around to movie theaters to try to sell them the latest 20th Century Fox movie, you know, or rent it to them. So that was, so he was a salesman. And he would say to me, salesmanship is very important. He would hmm. frequently say that. And I, I didn't, you know, I was only a kid in salesmanship. But it turns out salesmanship is very important. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's good to be able to sell something. And uh, even, even in science, you do some work and you want other people to uh, appreciate it and use it. And uh, so, you, you're, uh, you know, you're kind of selling. And, uh, but my father was just a very, very peaceable man. And I loved being with him. We would go to be together on Saturday. That was our day. Or Sunday, I don't know, one of the two weekend days. That was our day together. And uh, he took me to different places and uh, just, I saw, I, I really loved my father. Unfortunately, he got Alzheimer's at the age of about in his mid 70s, and uh, he went downhill rapidly. So that was unfortunate. No, I, I did love my mother, don't get me wrong, but uh, she was a tough customer. <laughs> Yeah, I always, uh, you know, say it's 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 the toughest job, and and we have so much riding on it. It's it's one thing, you know, when one of our you know kids was born, I didn't know what what to do, and, and we were both actually it was our first child, Isaac, when he was born, and uh, I just looked, and I was in a stupor, and I said. Get the instruction manual. <laughs> you know, there's just no, there's no, there's no instruction manual. It's the hardest possible job there is, and and I wonder, you know, how how you know it changes a person, uh, and and it makes some people more mature, some people less mature. But but in a sense, you can't be as selfish as you were if you're a good dad. I don't think you can be as selfish as you might have been, even when you selected your your spouse. You know, your your partner. You can select a partner based on their looks or their money or, or whatever. And you, in other words, you can do it to fulfill a need or a selfishness uh, 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 that you may have. But having a child, it's it's completely the opposite. I mean, there's no way that they're going to give you anything except for a lot of sleepless nights and and missed opportunities and so forth, at least for the first few years. My father used to say, I take an interest in a child when he learns geometry. Uh, you know, so so hopefully, uh, you know, we, I, he, he got some satisfaction out of my nephews who, who did know geometry at a very young age before he passed away. Um, I want to talk a little bit about legacy and, and maybe first what, what becoming a father meant to you and, and ha what it what it taught you uh when you had uh when you became a father you know for the first time and and how, how did it affect you did you did you have to make compromises in your work and uh how, how did things change for you how did things change for me well i loved being a father i was a very young father i was 22 when uh in those days that was not so young but uh today 22 was pretty young to be a father yeah, and uh, my wife was uh, nineteen when she became a mother. Uh, I loved it. Mm -hmm. I loved being with my kids, and uh, uh, so uh, we, we would have all kinds of adventures. And uh, so I, I just really enjoyed being a father. It was, <laughs> uh, 
Yeah, and, and you obviously had a big role in my early life when my father would go in on a Saturday. You know, my parents were divorced, so he would bring me and my older brother Kevin to the uh, Stony Brook math department, and he would always say something like, and I don't know why I kept working on me, but he'd say, come on, boys, we're going to see, we're going to the amusement park with Uncle Jim. And we'd get there and he would, you know, he'd put us in his office on one of his swivel chairs and just, that's the amusement park. And then he and you would go off and do some work on a chalkboard. I thought this is a pretty bum rap for, you know, for an amusement, uh, amusement park. But anyway, you guys had a lot of fun. Uh, almost, uh, almost like brothers themselves, uh, as I imagine. Yeah, we did. We, we did have a lot of fun. Well, we were in graduate school together. Yeah, uh, we were. We, we both finished in three years, and mm-hmm. uh, he went to Cornell, and I went to uh, MIT. I, he went to Cornell, and I went to MIT, and uh, uh, we stayed friends. Uh, you know, we stayed friends. Yeah. And, uh, and then of course, yeah, I wouldn't have been born at, uh, Stony Brook if, uh, if you hadn't been able to recruit him using all these tools and tactics that my mom talks yeah. about in the subtle gentle manipulation, sending beach sand to Ithaca in the middle of a frozen winter to get, uh, my mom's I interest. Did, I, I did something like, <laughs> but I got him out on the beach. Yeah. He liked, he liked the water. Yes. And, uh, you know, he had a, a small boat. Yeah, and uh, he really liked the water. Yeah, he was he was a good swimmer. As yes. well. yeah, he was very he was athletic. Good. Loved to play tennis and games and and stuff. And um, yeah, I have very fond memories of of that uh, time in my young life. Uh, it's a uh, you know it certainly is a challenge uh, growing up with parents that are divorced. But but I think you know uh, for that time period is very common back then. Um, I wonder, thinking a little bit more now about uh, about your children. And kind of just greater lessons. You once told me that you want uh, you want to live to be old enough to see your great grandkids because you remember your great grandparents. So that would be essentially eight generations, if I'm doing the math. That would be connected with Jim Simons in the middle. So great grandparents all the way to great grandchildren. And yes. that made me think of what you want to uh, leave, not as your material will, uh, that's not important to me in this conversation, but what's known in Hebrew as an zava'ah, it means ethical will. And it's sort of like what, uh, Al, uh, Alfred, uh, sorry, what, um, what Alfred Nobel did with his Nobel prize. He gave money away, of course, but he also had a mission that the Nobel prizes be used to better mankind. And, I wonder, and that's sort of an ethical will as well. It's not just the material riches that he had accumulated. He had no children, no spouse, um, but he uh, wanted to give away money to make a world a better place. But in your context, we know what you're doing in the foundation and philanthropy around the world, but I'm more I'm concerned and questioning now, what would you like to leave as your ethical will? What values, what wisdom uh, would you leave for your great-grandchildren, great-children? You know, in other words, the generation you're not going to meet, the ninth generation, so to speak, uh, your, your, your great-grandkids' gra- uh, children, what values, or even humanity as a whole, do you want people to, to know? Well... I guess I have to, you know, I don't go around thinking about that question. Um, I don't lecture 
my children. I didn't lecture them. But uh, I wanted to be a good example to them. And of course, I wanted them to love me. As you know, I've lost two children. It's a terrible thing. But uh, uh, the children that I have, uh, I just, I just hope they, they will remember me as a person who accomplished a lot of things and was a good, was a good father. Um, I, you know, one counts up sometimes what has he accomplished or what have I accomplished? I, I think about that. And, uh, well, I'm pretty pleased with what I've accomplished uh, in science and in philanthropy and uh, uh, etc. I'm pretty pleased. Could be better, but uh, I think I I think except for my smoking, make a pretty good example uh, to people. Mm. But I don't dwell on that question. Okay. I, I, down in history or whatever. Mm. Although I think with all the physics that Chern Simons has produced, I ought to get the Nobel Prize. <laughs> so, uh, uh, oh, we'll work on it for you. Yes, that, that'll be, that would be a... Well, not... well, it's true. I mean, it's, there's, there's even Chern Simons gravity yeah. uh, uh, as a possibility. I think there's an upper bound on what it could be. But... Mm -hmm. uh, was Chern Simon's gravity. Gravity. That was the most amazing thing uh, that happened uh, in in my life. That this mathematics that we did uh, began to apply to physics. I didn't know any physics to speak of. I mean, I don't know, F equals M A or whatever. <laughs> but uh, well, it, it does. <laughs> but uh, uh, so I didn't know much physics, and it's just astounding. In how many areas of physics this this has come to, uh, to be used? So uh, that's a real surprise, right? What what so. was that moment of discovery or invention <laughs> like for you? I mean, was it slow in realization? Uh, did you realize what you had come upon, or was it collaborative and therefore a little bit more paced slowly? Well, at first I was pleased with the math. I, I had started it. Um, I had uh, uh, gotten some results in three dimensions, uh, uh, which was very nice. And uh, uh, and then I showed it to Churn, and he said, "Oh, we can do this in all dimensions." I said, we can. Yes, I think we could. So we did. And uh, so that was. Uh, that was that, and I was very happy with that. And then Jeff Cheater and I worked together to invent something called differential characters, and uh, that's been useful. But I think just in mathematics, I don't think differential characters have been useful in physics. But but Witten, I think, was 
maybe the first one to start to start using churn simons. Mm-hmm. And and but then some Russians who were condensed matter physicists also claimed to me, oh, we we were using it before uh, before what? Hmm. So uh, I said, okay, well that's great. But it's uh, it's it's just it's one of those things that you never know where basic science will go. Hmm. You just never know. Yes. And. Uh, my favorite story is about I.I. Raby. You know I.I. Raby? Of course, yeah. NMR, yes. So he discovered nuclear magnetic resonance. Uh, it was a phenomenon. Uh, he won the Nobel Prize. Then several years later, two guys realized you could use it to analyze materials. They won the Nobel Prize. And then some years later after that, two guys, one of whom was at Stony Brook, realized you can make pictures. They didn't want to call it nuclear magnetic resonance because nuclear frightens people, so they called it magnetic resonance imaging, MRI. Publicity. Yeah. It's all over the place. Yeah. So the story, there is a story, and I don't know if it's right or wrong, about Reggie, that in his old age, he, he had some problem with his shoulder, so he had to go and, and get an MRI. <laughs> Uh, the idea that it was he who <laughs> was, was the father of these zillions of machines, which were all over the all over the place. Uh, so you never know. Yeah, I, I always think about that story in context with Alfred Nobel himself, who suffered from angina, you know, heart condition, and was later prescribed nitroglycerin to as an ailment, and that was, of course, a key component in his most famous invention of all time, which was dynamite. And he used to remark on the irony, the great irony that he was treated with this. And they called it, they used to call it, uh, you know, some healing potion or something like that, or trinitrin or something. And for the exact same reasons that they changed NMR to MRI was for publicity because seeing nitroglycerin scared off the public into thinking it was dangerous rather than therapeutic. So those two are connected in more ways than one. The last uh, two questions... Yeah, yeah. The last two questions I have. Um, so one is about um, the great distant future um, where none of us will be around. And I wonder if you remember the movie 2001, A Space Odyssey, uh, Arthur C. Clarke, um, uh, based on his book 2001, uh, where these uh, there are these monoliths, there are these structures that appear in the uh, African savanna, and then there's one on the moon, and it turns out these are objects placed by alien civilizations deep in the ancient past as sort of messages or warnings, or uh, we're not really sure what they were. They're kind of ominous, but also maybe cautionary. Um, uh, if you, you have an asteroid named after you, you're one of the uh, few people I can say have an asteroid, although your lovely wife, Marilyn, also has an asteroid named I after know. her. I know. Um, so you're small, asking... It's a smaller one. Yeah, yours, oh, is, yours is bigger. That's true. Yeah, but hers is faster. Hers moves really briskly. Hers moves yeah delicately and and uh, and yeah. swiftly about the cosmos. On your asteroid sixty six one eight Jim Simons, if you were to put a monolith, and it had to, it was going to last for a billion years. Uh, what message or maybe an equation uh, or what would you put on it uh, to signify perhaps the achievements of mankind or, or would you put a warning on it to you know to a future civilization what would you put on a monolith to last for a billion year time capsule on asteroid 6618 
Well, here's what I worry about in the future. So if you ask someone, what do you think the probability would be of a, a, a nuclear holocaust uh, in the next year? And he would probably say, oh, that's very rare. So, well, give me a number. Someone would say, well, man, one in a thousand, one in a thousand. Okay, so that means if we go 500 years, there's a probability greater than a half that we'll have a nuclear holocaust and blow the whole thing up. <laughs> and that'll be the end of us. So uh, I like to say that the most important science is political science. Mm. It teaches us how to live together. And I say, if we can't learn to live together, we're going to die together. <laughs> and I really believe that. Mm. We have to learn to live together. So um, maybe that would be inscribed in the yeah. astral. Very interesting. We can live together. So the very last thing uh, that I ask all my guests on the Into the Impossible podcast relates to the name of the podcast, Into the Impossible. I mentioned when I emailed you to request this, uh, this interview that Arthur C. Clarke had many laws. The first one was uh, any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Uh, his second law is for every expert, there's an equal and opposite expert. Uh, there's a fourth law, fifth law, but his third law is the limits of the possible can only be defined by going beyond them into the impossible. And my question for you is now we're going to go back in time. What would you tell a 20 year old, 30 year old Jim Simons? What advice to your former self would you give that maybe seemed impossible at the time, but then you did it? What advice would you give to your former self? Boy, so I, I, I come out of nowhere and address Jim, when, let's say, when he's 20 or something yes. like that. Yes, you show up. So I show up, I, I address myself. Of course, he doesn't know who I am. <laughs> and what would I advise him? Mm -hmm. Well, I think... It's very important to work and enjoy your work. So I would advise him to find some work that he really enjoys and work very hard at it. That's very I kind of trite advice, but I think it's good advice for anybody who's young. Uh, you want to do something that, find something that you really like or better still really love and then put your heart and soul into it. Thank you, Jim. Uh, this has been a wonderful uh, conversation. Happy Father's Day, Jim. Uh, you've been a, a great uh, force in my life. We talked about the greatest force in the universe. You've, you've, you're definitely in the top, uh, very, very selective set in my life and in many people around the world. You've, you've done so much for society, uh, for basic knowledge and the pursuit of wisdom, for autism, uh, and now with the uh, Flatiron Institute, working so hard on issues of computational um, uh, import. I think that's... Um, it's just so commendable. Thank you so much, Jim, for sharing your time with me today on the podcast. Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. 
If you enjoyed this episode of Into the Impossible, please subscribe, comment, share, rate, and review. For a chance to win a free copy of our most recent guest's newest book, send a screenshot of your review to info at imagine.ucsd.edu. We appreciate hearing from you and are always open to your suggestions for future episodes. For more information, go to imagination.ucsd.edu. Find us on Twitter at ImagineUCSD. Watch us on YouTube. Listen on iTunes. Into the Impossible is a production of the Arthur C. Clarke Center for Human Imagination in the Division of Physical Sciences at the University of California, San Diego. Eric Veery, Director. Brian Keating, Co-Director. Patrick Coleman, Associate Director. Produced by Stuart Valko.